Welcome to another episode of Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, and today we're going to be going into the role of educating health professionals, opportunities of private practice, and working as a medical provider in the martial arts realm. Today's guest is Ethan Christworth. Got it right. Um, He is the graduate program director, uh, Master of Science at Health Science, Rocky Mountain University uh, Health and Professions, or Health Professions. Uh, medical director of Sports Medicine, Christworth Sports Medicine System, which is his actual own private practice. He is the medical director of International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation, IBJJF, and Rock Tape Education uh, Curriculum Development and Master Instructor. Right on. Mr. and Dr. Ethan Christworth, hey. welcome to the show, bud. <laughs> Thanks, man. So I just stepped down from Rocky Mountain University, so I okay. apologize for not having that updated in my... Uh, in my bio that I sent to you, but, um, no you know, I've been working education for years, just, you know, as an athletic trainer, just moving on into more of a, uh, you know, curriculum development, education development role. So, uh, Rocky mountain was a great opportunity for me, but no longer there, but all the other stuff is correct. Okay. All right. Perfect. So, um, so you are an athletic trainer by practice. That's correct. Right. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Sat for the exam in 1994. I believe that makes me pretty old these days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, back when we had uh, internships and, you know, I did 1,500 hours and, you know, two athletic training classes and the rest was on your own. You know, here's a here's a cooler and a, and a, and a kit. Go travel with uh, soccer, softball, baseball, and everybody and learn how to do athletic training. You know, yeah, travel. figure it out. Yeah. Okay, so you did that, and then that was a bachelor's degree, I'm, I, right? And back yeah. then, was a bachelor's degree. Well, we didn't have a bachelor's in athletic training. We did at some schools, like certain schools had a bachelor's of athletic training, uh, but back then it was bachelor's of arts or bachelor's of science in physical education, and then emphasis athletic training, and then you minored, minored like in bio. So you really didn't have. Uh, you know, a strong education suit like we have today with Katie standards. It's, it was basically, yeah. you know, here is a ton of books. Here's what everyone's read and good luck on the BOC test. There <laughs> no study guides whatsoever. I mean, the pass fail rate back then was zip, you know, people just didn't wow. pass that exam back then. So luckily I did pass the first time edged by, um, you know, but now I see pass pass rates just so well because people are so well prepped for exams these days. We just didn't have that stuff. We were still we were studying. Check this out, Andy. We were studying some you know F A Davis exam thing through DOS. You know, the <laughs> that tells you how old it was. Not even sure what that is. I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, good. DOS was a, <laughs> DOS is basically the program before Windows came on. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So before Microsoft Windows, it was DOS. You had a C prompt and, you know, you typed in some code and these questions came up. So, wow. yeah, ancient okay. time. And, and at that time, you actually had a practical in the BOC where you had to perform in front of, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, other evaluators. Oh, so right? scary. I had, I remember, I had cranial nerves, how to test cranial nerves. I had a lower extremity neurology. I had a dual stethoscope where I had to take uh, BP and be within five millimeters of mercury between whoever else was listening in. So you better wow. nail that. Yeah. And then I had, you know, closing a laceration. I remember all everything I had. I had, uh, 
you know, some basic taping stuff, closing a laceration. Um, yeah, they just sat there in front of you and they gave you a tray of instruments and they give you a question and you can use or not use what's on the tray. And uh, they pulled you out. So basically you're taking the sim, uh, the simulation, which was done by highlighter pen back then, and just a multitude of uh, blank pages in front of you. You highlighted something and it told you to move on or it told you you were wrong. <laughs> wow. Yeah. This, this is uh, a written exam? This is the, this is the, well, there was a 150 multiple choice, then uh -huh. what we call the written simulation, which was done with a highlighter pen. And then during the written simulation, they'd put your name on the board and you just like saying, okay, guy just left. Okay, now my name's moving up. So during the written sim, they pull you out to do the practical, oral practical. Then you have to go back and finish your written sim. So it's just like, talk about a mental F, you know, <laughs> messes with your mind, you know, messes with your head. Yeah. So different times. Wow. Well, yeah. you survived that. And thank you for uh, being, I mean, again, I, we consider you uh, as one of the leaders in athletic training. So I'm sure you had a lot to to uh, talk about when it comes to like changing certain things. So I'm sure your your experience with that yeah. <laughs> had some, hey, you know, we should probably change a couple of things uh, when it comes yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah, so that um, times. Wow, that's, that's crazy. So what's your doctorate? Is it your PhD? Yeah, I have a PhD in athletic training, actually. So Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions is a um, private university out of Utah, Provo, Utah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was I was working as head athletic trainer at California State Dominguez Hills, and I put in about 11 years there, and I was already really burned out. And mm -hmm. I thought, man, there has to be something more for me. Um, I had finished my master's and I thought I want to go into program directing or go into research or something. And I started searching programs and uh, Rocky Mountain at that time was a up and coming program and they had just uh, passed their regional accreditation. And of course they already had national accreditation and I applied and I got in and I said, okay, this is going to be good. So um, you know what it really did? It really just made me unlearn everything I had already known. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it really challenged my understanding of all the things I thought I knew um, and it focused a lot on curriculum development and education as well as, you know, manual skills and, uh, you know, athletic training just at a more advanced level. So I, I, it was a PhD, but it was split between, uh, pedagogy and curriculum development and education. And then also of course, uh, athletic training manual skills. So, uh, it was a great degree. That's awesome. And then from there, where, what what did it lead you after that? So you were in uh, the university for about 11 years, and then you did your PhD, and then what kind of happened from there? Yeah, so I left uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills um, and pursued my PhD while applying to Concordia University of Irvine and became the program director down there, a uh, small NAIA school. Um, and, you know, that was a whirlwind, um, learning how to program direct, um, which I just did backwards ass, just I, I just didn't know what I was doing and I had to learn just through friends. I didn't have any help and I was program director, clinical coordinator and whatever else you could do at a really small school. So, um, so, and trying to work on my PhD and finish my dissertation. So that those three years that I spent in Concordia were just a hell of a mess in my opinion. Um, and then from there I finished my PhD and then from there I went to see, where'd I go from there? I went to Velocity Sports Performance and became their uh, medical director because we were um, basically developing contracts with the Chinese, the Chinese Olympic Committee 
on developing strength conditioning, uh, uh, sports medicine, you know, and all the other things that go along with it to develop better athletes in China. Mm -hmm. So I was going to China a lot and I was lecturing and also treating. And basically we'd go there as a team, myself, a strength conditioning specialist, um, a massage therapist, maybe some other coaches. And we had a team that would basically run more Americanized uh, programs of strength conditioning and sports medicine. So I did that for a few years all the way up to their Chinese games and then moved on there with uh, Olympic boxing um, up to the London games. Um, and then I got on with rock tape after that, I think. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So um, after your whole, uh, you know, you, went, you were working with uh, Velocity and then you were doing the, the help or helping with the Chinese, or the Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you had that experience and then you moved on and you had the experience with Rock Tape. How did that kind of come about? You know, Rock Tape was at that time, um, after the London Games, I was looking for work um, and I was going to go and apply more to colleges of athletic training and basically assistant professor, professor positions. They roll over mm-hmm. a lot. So they're, they're always on the board somewhere. Um, but a friend of mine uh, who I finished my PhD with, um, he uh, started, uh, I guess he was, uh, he was a big part of rock tip education and rock mm-hmm. education was fairly new at that time. And he was bringing on people. He said, Hey, we need more people to teach this thing called rock tape. I go, don't even know what that is. <laughs> he said, well, it's kinesiology tape. I go, of course, I know what that is. He says, well, come sit in on the course and tell me what you think. And, you know, we're looking for instructors. And that's exactly how it started. Sat in on some courses. Um, you know, well, I said, we're an athletic trainer, so we know how to yeah. do anything and everything, basically. So taping wasn't the hard part. Uh, learning how rock tape's methodology is far different than kinesio or KT or anybody else's curriculum. If you've taken any of our courses, it's really neurosensory and uh, mind body it's you know far from the mechanical models of you know facilitator inhibiting a muscle you're basically touching skin so learning the neuroscience of rock tape was really the biggest hurdle um, and going way back uh thinking gosh i have to learn a lot of neurology and neuroscience at the cutaneous level learn a Mm -hmm. lot about biopsychosocial science what's going on currently in today's pain world pain science pain applications so uh, I started that, like, I think around two th- end of 2014 is when I got on with Rock Tape, beginning of 2015, I believe. Um, and then it took off from there, and I started teaching a lot of courses. So you got introduced to Rock Tape. Um, when, what year was that, if you don't mind me asking? Just that was, for uh, yeah, the end of 2014. Um, then I started auditing courses 2015, uh, and then I started teaching 2000, like, in, like middle of 2015, I believe. Wow. So you, you, you've been with them for a while now. That's pretty cool from the, almost from the very beginning. Yeah. Well, rock tape's been around for uh, over 10 years or so. Education rock tape has probably been around. I think they started it like in 2013 with maybe a few instructors. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that year, 2015, I believe it was, they brought on probably about 12 or more instructors. So there was a lot of people who came on and we all basically had a, you know, a rock tape instructor summit out in Colorado and uh, Dr. Stephen Capobianco, who's the, the brainchild behind the education piece. Uh, he's a chiropractor out of Austin, Texas, uh, by way of Canada. Uh, he's just a different kind of guy. He didn't think a lot of this mechanical model stuff uh, really works. And, um, you know, he's a Cairo, but he's very outside the box. Um, mm-hmm. 
And he is really into the fascial science and the biopsychosocial science. And man, he opened my eyes to so much new information that I wish everybody knew. Um, that's why I love people to take rock tip classes. It's not a, just a taping course. It's is a neuroscience geek out fascial conquest course, man. And people always <laughs> write back in the in my assessments and say, "Gosh, this is so much more than a taping class." I said, mm-hmm. "That exactly is. It's taping is just a portion of it, you know." So, um, yeah. So, 2015, I think, is really kind of how it all started. It's just been just kicking ass, and since then, people love taking the courses, taking names. Just right, taking names, huh? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Talk to yeah. me more about your role of educating health professionals. I mean, you talked about uh, your influence or Rocky's influence in you and, and your education and kind of opening up your mind. What would you say your role is as far as uh, educating health professionals if it's either improving their approach to treatment or just their uh, thought process? Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I, it's kind of twofold because I love sharing current information. And again, um, you know, reading a lot about fascia, you know, the Steckos and the Schleip, you know, Robert Schleip and, you know, just so many great people talking about the current information related to skin and fascia and our brain connection. Um, that's really where I would hope that a lot of people can go and try to get out of this mechanical model that it must be this that's causing you pain. You know, pain is just so deep. And learning how the neuroscience works and the biopsychosocial science works. So teaching the rock tape courses, there's so many of them. I love to share that information and I love to be challenged with that information. And I get challenged every time I travel, whether it's international or national uh, or domestic, um, I get challenged all the time and, and that's okay. And I'm allowed to educate and share information through rock tape courses, which I love when I was teaching graduate courses, uh, just I love to share my my other thought concepts related to the content, of course, but how I feel about that content. And then lastly, you know, having my own athletic training business, I always bring on the new up and coming ATCs or even new DPTs that are interested uh, in looking at the acute medicine side and sharing and teaching and just kind of mentoring um, what happens in real athletic training events such as jujitsu. We're not real, but just athletic training events, you know, such as Brazilian jiu-jitsu or wrestling or things of that kind, because we get so many, we get some pretty, I'm going to use the medical term gnarly, pretty gnarly (laughs) injuries. So gnarly injuries are consisting of, you know, mandible dislocations, you know, completely dislocated knees, uh, completely dislocated, you know, ankle, shoulder, toe, anything. I think the only thing I haven't seen dislocated is a hip yet Jeez. yeah okay. so we try to reduce knock on wood right there. yeah knock on wood uh, we try to reduce right there and we can handle a lot of stuff and uh the, the new people that i get to share the information with are just like wide-eyed you know so it's really fun it's really fun so i really enjoy uh the education and the mentoring side of the whole thing what would you say i mean you have at this point it's been five years more or less since you've been with rock tape um and you have had your practice what would you say with the amount of people that you have been able to work with is the biggest struggle? Uh, I guess I'm going to go twofold. The biggest struggle for you as the educator when trying to relay this information, uh, especially some information that they probably have never seen before. Like, what do you find is the biggest struggle? Yeah, that's a great question, Andy, because when you, if I'm going to go to rock tape for that, um, for that example, and I sit down in front of, I'm an athletic trainer, right? I have a PhD. So that, that little three letters right there 
shows clout to a lot of people, right? So people just really disrespect our profession so much. So as an ATC, uh, and I stand in front of, you know, Kairos that I have 20 years experience. Uh, we've had DOs, OT, OTs, uh, you know, of course, DPTs, all these people within our courses. They're arms folded, leg crossed, right? They are, they, they are like, you are not going to teach me shit. And, you know, I'm going to listen to you because I've been taping with kinesiology tape for, you know, 32.59 years now. So that's the challenge. And that's what I really like. And, you know, if you know how to lecture and to present, you present in a, in a humble way, you present in an open way and you take suggestions and it's more customer service. And then by the afternoon, arms are unlocked, legs are open, and people are ready to hear the information that I have to give them. What's going on with the neuroscience? What's going on with the fascial science? What's going on with the person? The person's not a piece of meat. The person's not a shoulder. The person's not a knee. The person's not a chronic ankle sprain. They are a person. And how can I basically empower them to get better? And I think those messages, as I continue to roll them over and over and over for six to eight hours, finally, people are saying, oh, Maybe it's not the psoas. Maybe it's not the psoas fault. Maybe it's, you know, this chronic back pain and how people are experiencing their back pain related to all these other confounders that are causing them pain. So again, it takes time. People, a lot of people don't want to listen, you know, especially people that have a lot of experience. You know, I don't know why people buy and spend money on continuing education if they don't want to learn what the class they're coming to. Do you know what I mean? Like people mm -hmm. basically you paid for a class. Don't you want to hear what the content is? Or do you just want to challenge the content all day? So we have those, we have those, mm -hmm. and, you know, we've had people who have not liked courses and I said, Hey, you don't like, you don't like the course. That's cool. I'll give you your money back. You know, no problem. I just want to know, you know, what did you think about the information and how it was delivered? Because that's very, very important. So we call that pedagogy, just teaching how to teach. And, you know, within rock tape, I'm the education director and I make sure that, you know, well, it's my job that all rock tape instructors know how to deliver content. So anybody can learn content, but how do you deliver the content? How are you accepting up there? How is your voice projecting? How are you looking? How are you walking? How are you answering questions? How are you facilitating the lecture? How are you facilitating the clinical breakout? So those things all play a massive role in a person understanding content and enjoying the class. Wow. So, I mean, I know for myself, I've taken a few of the rock tape courses and I've taken other courses and you don't necessarily think about the delivery as much, right? But that's almost, if not more important than the actual content. Like you mentioned, a lot of times you come, uh, people that are the students that are in your class, um, you almost have to break this barrier uh, before even introducing the content. So like you mentioned, like the way you present yourself, the way you present the content and the way you allow for that communication um, allows for that reception of the, uh, of the education of the content. Yeah. But what I find too, even for myself, as I start to learn more and you start to realize, okay, I don't know too much. <laughs> what I thought I knew, I didn't right. know. Um, the more you know, almost sometimes you start to close your mind to other things. You almost constantly have to uh, reevaluate yourself, constantly have to keep your mind open. doesn't matter the, the amount of information that you learn today. Tomorrow is going to be much more. And being open to that, I think, is the most important part as a student. And then, like you mentioned, as, a, as an instructor, is allowing for that dialogue and that communication to happen, not just trying to uh, vomit or just trying to throw all this science jargon and hope that they to. Uh, for them to understand that. Yeah. But like you mentioned, this this delivery of content 
is um, I would almost even from this conversation, I'll say that's probably the most important part than the actual. Content. Yeah, it really is. I would agree. I mean, it should be a student engagement or student centered. We call it so yeah. typical student centered learning would be, you know, not me directing and top down loaded PowerPoint, just, you know, shouting it all out at you, but you know, testing how you learn it, right? So formative evaluation, how are you learning within that day, right? How can we, how can we learn? And then summative assessment would be at the end of the day, you know, what did you learn? You know, give me three concepts. So we call that closing the loop of learning. So what did you learn mm -hmm. today in this rock tape class? Give me one thing. And then, you know, we can continue to formatively or formative or summatively, you know, test people throughout the day to see if they're actually learning and you're there to learn, right? So, but the person has to be open to learning. And, you know, those classes are hard because like I said, you have the umbrella of sports medicine practitioners coming to your class. So you have, mm -hmm. you know, a strength coach, a massage therapist, a, a, a kinesiology biomechanist. I don't know. I'm just making them up, right? So there's so many names out there all the way up to, you know, an athletic trainer, a DPT, a Cairo, and, and whoever else is a doctor these days, a PhD. So but all those people need to get along. So you, as the coach of the day, need to engage them and make sure they all get along so they feel they're engaged and no one feels bigger than the other and no person feels lesser than the other. So it's really up to you to facilitate that room. And if you can do a good job facilitating that room, man, you scored. You did a great job. And people learn that way. You just broke down the wall and you just, now they're going to suck up the information. Mm -hmm. I think, like I said, it, a lot of times I think as a student, you don't necessarily see that aspect of it. You just see the content being portrayed or being delivered, but you don't see the mechanism of that and everything that goes behind yeah. it. It's almost like the man behind the, the scenes, right? That, that person behind the scenes. I think, I think uh, you'll see it when you take a course and you love mm -hmm. that course and that instructor was really great. And then you take the course mm -hmm. and the instructor doesn't have, they may have the knowledge, but they don't have the delivery. And they mm -hmm. don't have something was just off. They just don't have maybe the experience. And you're like, that class sucked. You know, there's plenty <laughs> of those. I mean, you look at continuing education today. There are a plethora of courses out there to take. You can build a master's degree, if not a doctorate degree, by just taking continuing education. You know, there's just mm -hmm. so many courses out there, way too many courses. So, uh, you know, people are learning very very differently these days people it's not people are bypassing master's degrees or bypassing undergraduate degrees and taking you know rock tape frc sfma fms pri uh art dns i mean and then all those levels of those courses you're spending you know 50 plus grand a year on continuing education so it's a monster is it not mm -hmm. a monster you're starting to see a lot more uh, resources available. And again, people, like you mentioned, a lot of people learn different ways and their ability to uh, jump into these courses and really dive into uh, certain methodologies or certain ways of teaching, which helps them. So I, I think, you know, back then you didn't have this many resources. Now it's only, now it's almost like too many mm -hmm. options. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, if, if, you know, of course we're on social media and, you know, every, every second there's something new out there and then people yeah. dig into that and it's hard. You really got to be uh you know, you got to be open and, you know, the older I get, the less I know, you know, there's always something new out mm -hmm. there for me to learn. And I just try to put it in my main, my main understanding buckets. And if I can, if I can do my main understanding buckets, then it works for me, you know? So. 
Talk to me about uh, your private practice. Okay, so how did how did that go about? Why did that go about? Yeah. Uh, and what are the branches of it? Because I know when I spoke to you, it was like so many branches. I was like, holy cow, how do you? <laughs> yeah, so Christ Word Sports Medicine. Um, kind of the genesis of that is uh, I'm a jujitsu guy. I've uh, been playing Brazilian jujitsu probably for about twenty three years now, something like that. I wrestled in wow. high school and. Uh, I was really fortunate enough that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Hoist Gracie basically came to my town in Southern California in the um, late 80s, early 90s, way before you were born, probably. <laughs> so uh, yes. I was fortunate that you know this thing came on television called the Ultimate Fighter Challenge before it was called the UFC. So mm-hmm. uh, Hoist Gracie, who was one of, I think, six brothers, five or six brothers, was the main main opponent um, or main fighter of the Ultimate Fighter Challenge, and I joined up. I I heard he was fighting, and I saw it on cable. And I went over to Hoist Gracie Academy or the um, Gracie Academy in Torrance, California, and I I joined up after I think the third UFC, the third Ultimate Fighter Challenge. Um, so I started competing, and you know they had small tournaments, and whenever they had small tournaments, sorry. Uh, whenever they had small tournaments, they never had any medical personnel. They didn't know what an athletic trainer was. So I said, hey, I'd love to compete at your tournaments here. Um, uh, do you have an ATC? And they're like, what is that? And then I explained what an ATC is. And, you know, so I said, give me free registration and I'll give you free medical. Because at that time, it was only like, you know, three or four mats for half of a day. It really wasn't uh, mm-hmm. as big as it is now. So that's how it started. That started in... 97 and 98 um i started doing my first tournaments medically um so i started covering i just you know brought my cooler brought my kid and a table and you know whatever happened happened as with athletic training and then the uh international brazilian jiu-jitsu federation came to town from rio de janeiro and then the tournaments got big these guys were well organized and they brought huge tournaments the the pan ams when it was called the pan ams the the, the worlds, mm-hmm. you know, and now if you follow jujitsu, I mean, there is a probably one or two tournaments a month. So what turned out to basically, hey, let's swap free registration so I can compete, uh, turned into this monster. And I just said, hey, I got to start hiring people if I want to keep doing this. And, um, you know, basically that's how it rolled out. So now these tournaments are, you know, four days, if not five days long. Some of the tournaments are 28 mats. And I have to hire a big team. So then I've hired an assistant since then um, to help me take care of all the logistics that go along with manning these huge tournaments. You know, how are we getting housed? How are we getting fed? Is there gas money? You know, how are we paying the athletic trainers? Of course, all the insurances. So it's turned out to a monster and I definitely need help. Um, So I hired my assistant, Shelby Daly. She came out of uh, Cal Baptist. A good, good athletic trainer that has just a really keen knowledge of of uh, spreadsheets, <laughs> which not me. So, um, you know, I don't know how many years later it's been. I'm still competing um, and uh, running these tournaments. So, do you do you see uh, patients yourself, or you just do these events, or? Do you practice? Yeah, so I used to practice when I was at Velocity Sports Performance. Now I practice once or twice a week out of my own house. I just have a table, and I only see mm-hmm. certain people. 
like, uh, you know, a lot of jujitsu people know me. So I'll get cold calls or cold direct messages and saying, Hey, I have this issue. So they'll come to my house. Um, I really don't mm-hmm. see more than I usually treat Tuesday, Thursday and don't see more than two people, two people like on a Tuesday, two people on a Thursday. I keep it really calm. Uh, I can spend a lot of time with them. Um, and I like that aspect better because I feel I can get better outcomes. And, you know, when you see as an athletic trainer, I think the hardest thing is when I tell people, when you see somebody every day, if not twice a day for an entire season, if not an entire year, if not the entire four years of their college um, career, outcomes are really hard to come by. You know, you know, when you can basically empower a patient, you see them on a Tuesday and they come back and you see them again on an, another Tuesday, you waited seven days and you can empower them on their, their own home exercise programs, their own treatment processes, instead of you being the fixer, right? I don't think we ever fix people. I think people fix themselves. So you can be the, mm-hmm. the, the startup of that fixing, if there's such a word for helping people, but you could be the startup of that, but you really have to empower that patient and talk about pain science and talk about better positioning, talk about better movement, talk about better posture, whatever the, whatever the case may be that you can get further with that patient care. But seeing people spread out Man, I mean, I just know looking back, seeing people every single day after football practices at certain colleges or soccer practices at certain colleges, you know, they have to come in the same, they just lay on the table and, you know, it's, that's a really hard, hard thing. So I feel for athletic trainers clinically these days. As far as an experience, uh, I mean, again, you see the, the two worlds of the sports medicine side, the traditional side, where you're seeing those athletes, you're seeing those patients basically almost mm-hmm. every day. Um, and then the type of treatment, type of experience you're able to provide there compared to the type of experience you're now able to provide now, which is cool, out of your own home. And you get to, you know, choose who you get to choose or get to treat and or the amount of people you get to treat. Um, how has that experience been for you and how has that i guess open your eyes to um what a lot of practitioners are trying to uh, yeah yeah out. so you know cash pay private practice stuff and again um you know jiu-jitsu christward sports medicine is just you know jiu-jitsu coverage we do you know sideline treatment but we're not getting into it so what i have at the mm-hmm. house is cash pay and you know, of course, there's no modalities here. I, I'm not big on modalities anyways. I don't really ice or heat or, you know, use ultrasound or stim much anymore. It's basically going to be some manual therapies, a lot of, you know, kind of controlled articular rotation stuff, FRC stuff. I love that stuff. And then working on mm-hmm. some really good movement, right? Working on some integrated motion and some movement. So it's basically floor work, you know, working up to standing work, but it's, it's pretty much all motion. You know, you try Mm -hmm. to do a lot of resets, you know, when that's those resets can be manual therapies, PNF, um, you know, using tape, things like that. But those aren't the things that are going to truly help. It's really teaching them how to move. Right. So if they have back pain, teaching them how to lift correctly, teaching them positioning, teaching them hip hinging, you know. If they have pain in their whole, you know, in their hips or their back from running, you know, looking at their feet and take care of their feet you know, and, and what they need and teaching them foot strength. So it comes down to almost like glorified personal training, you know, prehab, rehab kind of ideas, but it's really all functional. I think, you know, all the Mm -hmm. resets that are out there today, whether it's, you know, dry needling or some special manual skill, all they are is resets, in my opinion. You just open up Mm -hmm. that kind of like that neurological window that you can move further in the process. So if somebody comes in and 
you know, they have back pain and I did some resets on them and now they have better motion. All I did was just open up that transient window that now we can start working on some stuff that they really need to work on. And that's the way you kind of uh, psychosocially kind of get into them, right? So all you did is put your hands on them and they trust you and you opened up that reset and you have a small window to, to move forward. Yeah, I mean, it's super important. I always talk about that movement opportunity, right? Or learning opportunity where, I mean, like you mentioned, resets, whatever your your tool is, hands, tape, whatever it is, uh, you, you allow the body to uh, reduce pain, reduce that pain experience. And now you, uh, you're you able to now uh, really work into that, uh, like you mentioned, that movement side, which is, again, is something that it can that creates sustainability because now they can be able to use that and whatever you teach them uh, for whatever activity they want to and to really help them uh, really get over whatever limitation they have. So as you start to see more practitioners work this way and really try to and maybe even go into their own business or maybe go into uh, having this type of experience, do you see a lot more practitioners like going this way now that you see even athletic trainers, even PTs, even I mean, any really. Any I, I think so. I think that, you know, you know, the days back when you were the head athletic trainer for a, a university uh, for, you know, 35 years, I think those days are mm-hmm. closing. I mean, you so many mm-hmm. younger athletic trainers or, you know, PTs that just don't want to work for a physician don't, you know, a pops clinic and, you know, they don't want to do insurances uh, or the athletic trainer side doesn't want to do, you know, 75 hours a week, you know. It's like Mm -hmm. people are burned out fast and they're looking for different opportunities. And, you know, now with the social media presence, if you have, you know, really good social media, um, you have good word of mouth. I mean, I think you could start making it work, you know, and just like you guys are doing, you know, what you guys are doing is awesome. And, you know, yeah. Is it, is it work? Yeah. You got to work every day on your marketing and work every day on your, on your skills on how to get people through the door and, how are you going to go out there and make contacts and, you know, how are you going to give, you know, free, uh, a free, uh, a seminar on knee injuries in the youth and what, what are your opportunities mm-hmm. to open up windows so you can get more clients or more patients. So I think these are the more the more current ideas in athletic training as far as business is concerned. Absolutely. I mean, again, there's gonna, you're gonna have to work either way, either you work, uh, again, not to say that everyone is, um, Everyone should own their own business, but again, you're going to have to work either way, whether working in a clinic and being working up to like the clinical director or whatever it may be, or owning your own business where you're working to market and really provide that experience that you're looking for. The work that you're going to have to put in is That's still right. there. Um, just depends on where you want to put in that work and put in that effort. But again, like you mentioned, I definitely see a big growth of practitioners looking to provide that experience, that one-on-one experience where they get to really uh, provide this total autonomy of what they can provide to their patients and control that and really be able to provide this care that, again, a lot of people are looking for. So uh, I definitely see a growth. So that's pretty cool that basically you've been doing that for a long time now. Yeah, pretty long time. And, you know, luckily, you know, the reason why I went for the PhD is, you know, it's, it's just a respectful degree. I, I felt really disrespected as an early ATC, continuing to yeah. talk about what we are, especially, you know, I'm in California. So, you know, we don't have, we don't really have any regulations. So that's good and bad. I mean, yeah. because I could dry needle or, you know, reset joints, you know, I'm really not under anybody's major, you know, risk umbrella, uh, just my own. Um, so there's good and bads, right? But um, 
uh, I think that it's personality. You know, I used to tell people this. It's like 65% personality and the rest is is knowledge on athletic training. If you know how to talk to people mm-hmm. and you know how to bring a client in and you know what you're doing and you're you're a nice person and you, you can smile, uh, then, you know, you're going to have results. You're going to have outcomes. You know, the outcomes are, you know, the outcomes come from so many different, it's so many variables on why you get outcomes, right? You don't get outcomes just massaging that person or just stretching that person or sticking a needle in that person. It's the whole experience. How does the clinic lurk? You know, what? who referred you to the clinic? Uh, how is that clinician working with you? What's their experiences? I mean, there it's all psychosocial and of course bio, you know? It's like, it's not just that mm-hmm. treatment because you've probably had this experience where, you're working with the patient or client and you're not getting the outcomes you wanted. And then, you know, they call you and they said, Oh, I'm feeling so good. And you're like, Oh, that's great, man. They're like, yeah, yeah. My friend referred me to the Cairo and you know, he's just adjusted my hip and I'm all better now. I'm like, what the, f- come on. man. you know, it's like, right. but he got a good referral, right? Uh, the clinic probably looked mm-hmm. great. Um, he had all his degrees on the wall. I mean, it could have been anything, you know, it could have been anything. So yeah, I mean, I talk about a lot about the interaction, right? And that aspect of, about, again, the biopsychosocial model of your interaction with the patient is a lot of times is with practitioners, right? They all only think about the technique and the uh, and their knowledge and how I'm going to work with this particular patient. But your interaction, like you mentioned, your impression, that first impression, that conversation, how you go about uh, finding what their pain points are. Are, can mean the, the difference. Like you mentioned, you might not even get to do everything you want to do in that session, or maybe it didn't really work out like the, the exact plan that you have for them. But at the end of the day, they text you or the next time they come in, like, yeah, I feel oh, much my, better. Totally. Uh, yeah. So that interaction is, is super important. So I, I mean, I, yeah, I just, agree. I call it taking them off threat. You know, when you're in pain, you're mm-hmm. in so much threat. And when you're in threat, pain experience will increase. So there's some really good psycho- uh, psycho- psychology science around being on threat and using the lower centers of your brain instead of the, the you know, forward thinking brain of movement. So when you're on threat and you're in pain, you're going to shut down. So just talking to people about what pain is and how pain is experienced um, is really helpful. And before you know it, you're having them hip hinge and you're having to do motions that they thought they couldn't do. Right. So if you mm-hmm. have that, that wasn't mechanical. You just took them off threat, you know? So. Right. All right. Talk to me, talk to me, talk to me about this Brazilian, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like, I, again, I know you talked about how you got uh, influenced through the, the early, um, I think you're, well, it wasn't called, it was ultimate yeah. fighter. That was earlier on. So you got influence. So you got influenced through that. And then, I mean, you've been practicing now BJJ for 23 years. Um, was it only the, like what you saw, you saw Gracie in the, in, on the television and him fighting and stuff like that, that kind of introduced you or got you more involved in it? Or was it like the culture of it? Was it like the whole meaning of why jujitsu started? Like what's the really meat and potatoes reason why you chose BJJ over, uh, Anything yeah. else, whether it's like softball. Well, or, I guess know. I was, you know, I, I wrestled in high school, so I already had a base of, you know, grabbing people and being close in approximation. So I never had, you know, as boys, we put on the gloves and, you know, have backyard little fights and stuff like that. But I never really enjoyed being punched in the face. <laughs> so, um, and then the thing about jujitsu is that it's applicable. I mean, you could train 100%, yeah. you know, and if you're fit 
and you're non-injured, you could train 100% every single day, you know, whereas in certain arts, you know, you have to perform the techniques and stuff or, or hit other things. You can't really hit people every single day unless they fully pad up or maybe you're poly stick mm-hmm. fighting and you're throwing sticks around. And just jujitsu is just like, it's like a flow chess game of art. Once you get really good at it um, and you have really good partners, it's just like, it, the, the movement's insane. It's just so good. There's so many great movements and there's so much flow. It doesn't have to be a flight, a fight. There's, you know, wearing the kimono, not wearing the kimono, which is gi and no gi. Um, mm-hmm. It just, it's, it's just so, it's beautiful. It's like a chess game, you know? So I think that's why I got into it. And it gets like any other martial art or anything you're interested in. It just gets highly addictive. And, you know, people study jiu-jitsu on YouTube. You know, they read every single article. They follow flow grappling. They go to every single tournament. I mean, it just engulfs your entire life. You play jiu-jitsu when you're sleeping in bed by pulling up covers with your feet. You know, you play jiu-jitsu with your kids rolling around. and just keeps you really young. I mean, I'm 50 now. And, you know, my, my kid, both my kids do jiu-jitsu. And, uh, you know, we always you always can wrestle. I mean, it's just, you're like the big uncle. You're always wrestling with somebody. So it's just very applicable. And um, I'm really glad I found it. And it's just kind of shaped my whole life. That's all. And I can completely agree of the chess game and addictive side to martial arts. As I now, it's been almost a year where I've been consistently doing Hapkido, which is like a version of Aikido, Taekwondo, grappling on one. Um, but what I like about it most to me is almost meditative, right? It, it gives me the opportunity to work on myself right? Work on myself mentally, kind of like you mentioned that chess game side of it where you create strategy, but also too, it, it allows me to work on myself as uh, physically, but then then a mental side gets me away from work, gets me away from anything else. And now it's just Hapkido or martial arts time. Uh, it's again, meditative. Some people use yoga. Some, some people use that strength training or high intensity stuff or go for a run. But what I find is that martial arts uh, it gives you that that element of of culture, right? Uh, it gives you that element of obviously that community and camaraderie with your training partners and your you know masters or instructors. Uh, but it also teaches you a discipline and teaches you another form of responsibility uh, with yourself to like take care of yourself. And obviously, you get yeah. to whip some people's butts every now and then, throw people on, yeah. on the ground. That's always cool too. Um, but there's so much more to behind it. Yeah, I thought it, you hit the nail on the head right there, community, because, you know, that's why CrossFit got so big and is still so big because when you can get, I think yeah. it's called, a, I believe it's called the Kohler effect. When you can get a group of people together, uh, you just train way better. I believe it's the Kohler effect. Um, I could be wrong there. Mm. But, um, you know, CrossFit did a great job bringing community together and challenging them and making them reach you know, intermittent goals, if not long-term goals. And jujitsu is the same way. It's a family. Um, When you miss jujitsu for a week, you're like, oh my gosh. You know, like you hear about, you know, uh, people that are in the armed forces and they leave their, you know, their company and, you know, they come back home. They want to go back. It's like, I got to go back. I got to go back. Jujitsu is the same way. You know, I'm sure your martial art is the same way. It's like, that's your group. And, you know, what are they Mm -hmm. learning? And, who's who's more intense this week and who's getting better and it's just uh it's for type a people for sure um but i see so many people doing jiu-jitsu now i mean you have you know lawyers doctors before it was just meatheads you know it was just all of us meatheads people who wrestled in high school and 
you know, like to lift weights and take our shirts off. And now it's like, you know, business people, women, children, people you'd never expect. No jujitsu. I mean, just look at, um, you know, Hollywood. There's all kind of Hollywood stars at jujitsu now. So it's just crazy. It's just, it's just grown so much. As far as, um, I mean, you've been doing medical or providing medical uh, care for martial arts for a while now. Do you see that like growing more as uh, martial arts starts to become more and more, or I guess people start to now do martial arts more and start to compete more? Do you start to see uh, the type of medical provision or medical uh, care that you provide for Christworth Sports Medicine uh, to be more mainstream? Or because uh, I know I've gone to two or no one uh, BJJ and I didn't see any medical uh, or any like any medical anything there. But as it starts to grow, do you see have that having or being more uh, of a thing where they actually have more like either ATCs or uh, I don't know, physical therapists? Anybody, yeah, I mean, any other um, you know, working with uh, probably the largest federation in the world, IBJJF, there's a lot of so many other federations have branched out now. There's the NABJJF. There's, you know, uh, oh gosh, the sport BJJF. There's so many, but, you know, they all should have medical some of them some of them still don't learn and mm -hmm. you know when you're talking about risk and you're talking about being litigious i mean they should have most people yeah. that host tournaments now have to have somebody medical um some of these places like i'll get a call say hey can we get uh, um you know they call us medics because they just don't know i tried to explain what an atc yeah. is they just call us medics yeah. so whatever so uh <laughs> They may hire an EMT and an ambulance, and that's just really, man. They yeah. got EMTs who basically provide oxygen and splint everything that's sprained. I mean, you know, we're here relocating joints, we're mm -hmm. keeping people on the mat. You know, when Chrysler Sports Medicine mm -hmm. gets to do tournaments, we get you know great praise because they we get to keep people on the mat safely, of course, but we get to keep people on the mat. Whereas, you know, if you have somebody that's untrained, you know, a physical therapist who has no uh, acute medicine knowledge or you get an EMT where everything looks like it needs to be hospitalized. Um, that's a hard deal. So I think with the amount of jiu-jitsu that's out there today, hopefully people are getting more and more educated on what an ATC is and how we can provide care in these tournaments. So You mentioned earlier a couple of injuries that, you, that you've seen. What are the most common ones that you typically see in a, in a BJJ Yeah, uh, well, I did my, my dissertation was on uh, the epidemiology of musculoskeletal injury in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu fighters. So I took data, I took large mm -hmm. data sets on uh, the world's uh, event. I think I had a data set of about 3,500 competitors. And, you know, the number one injury typically was an elbow injury from an elbow lock or a arm bar, we call it. Uh, we saw uh, mm -hmm. knee injuries was like second, but arm injuries typically because it's a long bone, it's a long lever and, in jiu-jitsu, you're allowed to submit your opponent. It's very available. Um, so elbow injuries mm -hmm. typically are number one. Um, you know, it, if it's no gi, we see a lot of lacerations. Um, so that's kind of a, a you know, so people are sweaty. They're throwing their heads around. They get kicked here and there accidentally. So we'll see lacerations. So, But probably arm injuries and knee injuries. Sometimes the knee injuries are just due to um, – there's certain positions, one's called an outside hook or delaheva or a kind of like wrapping up the leg where it puts tons of pressure on the uh, 
posterolateral joint line. So you're looking at like PCL, mm -hmm. LCL, popliteal ligament, popliteal tendon. Those structures over time, they don't have a lot of support uh, in certain positions. So we'll start to see uh, laxity in those areas, though. Those injuries come along too. For someone that wants to practice BJJ more often and wants to avoid these injuries, are there any like recommendations yeah. uh, that you would give uh, yes. for someone to yes, stay more yes, consistent? Yes, yes, <laughs> So jiu-jitsu has <laughs> just evolved into this crazy, look like a spider movement game. So everybody tries to play this very open moving game when they don't have the, the, the motion or the range of motion or the flexibility in certain areas. Hips, number one. So no one, I don't know how many people you see, but anyone who I've really assessed over, I don't know how many years, doesn't have internal rotation, at least Americans. I mean, you see internal rotation mm -hmm. in China like it's off the hook, you know, because they're a squatting culture. You see internal rotation with the Brazilians, yeah. probably, you know, halfway between squatting culture and sitting culture. So Americans, uh, from what I've seen, have good external rotation and very limited internal rotation. The game requires internal rotation as well. And people try to play these kind of what we call open guard games um, and get their knees all tangled up. And, you know, if you don't have good range of motion at the hip, you're not going to have any range of motion at your knee. You don't have range of motion. You have flexion extension and mm -hmm. a little bit of terminal extension at the knee. That's it. Um, so people get hurt all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's really not, you know, it's not the knee's fault. It's just that they don't know how to move well. And they are, these have limited range of motion in their hip and they're trying to certain positions. So hip range of motion, internal and uh, external, I would say number one, number one. Yeah. <laughs> right, man. Learning a, learning a lot. Uh, You're bringing well, I would the fire say, to I would it. say within your, within like your martial art too, I mean, all those kicks and I mean, you have your down, your stance leg, yeah. how much motion at the hip, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, acetabular on, on the neck of the femur or the femur on the acetabulum, you need to have, those two joints need to disassociate so well, you know, that, that you can rotate and yep. generate power. Jiu-Jitsu is the same way. It's just on the ground. Yeah, I see a lot of adductor strains, uh, low back issues uh, when it comes to that. Because you're trying to work on these kicks, trying to get this side kick at somebody's head. And some people can't even reach past yeah, their, their uh, chest. People want to play the sport. <laughs> and know? I respect that. People want to play the sport 100% right. of the time. But they don't want to do anything to really you know, change themselves. They just want to play the sport. And then, you know, three months of right. jujitsu, uh, you're hurt and you have to take time off and, you know, you've spent money on jujitsu and then people come to you. I've seen so many people at that mark late in their, uh, kind of halfway through their white belt, later in their white belt, um, with all kinds of injuries because they just don't want to, they, all they do is just grip the gi. They just want to be strong and people are strong, mm -hmm. but they don't want to give up position for range of motion. So People need to learn how to flow mm -hmm. and breathe pretty much. Yeah, you have to put in the work outside the mat to be able to perform on the mat. And that goes to the athlete and that goes to the recreational uh, athletes, what I call um, someone that just wants to kind of do BJJ or martial arts or any really form of sport Monday through Friday and then, you know, not really compete, but still to be. Anybody that's active, I consider an athlete. And for an athlete to, to stay consistent, to stay healthy, their plays like nutritional, they plays the outside stuff, but still the the performance side of it, like again, stretching, warming up, all your prehab stuff, like working on mobility, like Ethan's saying, when especially when it comes to BJJ, that internal rotation um, and hip and mobility in general. Um, 
it's just doing the little things. It's not taking 30 minutes, just doing, you know, five, 10 minutes before you go into a mat, you know, five, 10 minutes added up three times a week, you know, that builds up to 15, 20, 25 minutes. And now you're doing 25 minutes of prehab work or like uh, mobility stuff or like actual stuff that are going to help you kick more, kick higher, uh, be able to perform more, to slip out of uh, positions better, to get in positions better. I think sometimes, again, a lot of people are coming from work. A lot of people are, are are taking their kids with them. So there's a lot playing a part. But I usually tell people, get there 10 minutes before. And if you can't do it 10 minutes before, do it 10 minutes after. Or you're working on things you need to work on, like Ethan mentioned, hip uh, rotation, uh, mobility stuff, maybe some strengthening stuff. Um, I think sometimes... I don't know in your case, but I know I've seen people just try to overcomplicate things and like just stay consistent, do the small things right. Um, and we're able to do this stuff, uh, whatever we love, which is, again, BJJ for you, uh, Hapkido or martial arts for me or any sports uh, for longer. And the idea is not to do it for a certain amount of time, but the idea, the idea is to do it for, for yeah. life, right? Yeah, so, I'm, you know, I'm we super enjoy lucky at my dojo um, at the competition class, which is the, the longer one. Um, the professor has let me basically integrate a kind of a pails and rails stretching program as well as an activation with uh, some mini bands. Yeah. And we do that. And usually our warm up mm-hmm. consists of that. Our warm consists of basically activation and, you know, uh, dynamic range of motions and, you know, cars, pails and rails and all that good stuff. And, you know, we do that for 45 minutes. If you're not ready at that time, you'll never be ready. So it's really cool that, you know, I'm allowed this opportunity <laughs> to share my knowledge there too. I don't, I don't work for the, for the dojo. Um, but he knows, you know, my background. So he gives me the opportunity and it's great. Cause then mm-hmm. I get, you know, I get in all my prehab work that I should be doing all week anyways. Right. And it's just part of my training. So super fun. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a two for yeah. one there. All right, Ethan. How how can uh, the listeners uh, contact you? Contact info, email, uh, IG, website, whatever you want them to uh, yeah. be able to you know reach out to you. I can oh, great! So if you're interested in in uh, working for Christ for Sports Medicine as an athletic trainer and want to come check out some events, um, you can email me or email my assistant and me at blackbeltsportsmedicine at gmail.com. Blackbelt sportsmedicine at gmail.com if you're interested in rock tape courses and knowing more about rock tape you can email me at ethan e-t-h-a-n at rocktape.com if you like to follow social media um I post stuff from playing guitar. I, I was a musician for years, actually, so maybe that helped me with stage presence. So, uh, playing guitar to jujitsu to rock tape to sports medicine. That's my IG account. That's uh, Doctor Dr. Dot, and then my last name. So maybe I should change that, huh? Dr. Dot K R E I S W I R T H. But if you just if you just type in dr.kr i usually pop up yeah no worries uh for those of you that are interested um you should look at the bottom of this podcast in the show notes uh and you should see uh his contact info and, and reach him uh and all these uh awesome man hey strips. i really enjoyed awesome. the opportunity great questioning and you know i can tell just by the way you deliver your podcast you don't have a lot of what i call transition words no ums no like Oh yeah. I try to close up each conversation and you know, that's all about delivery. So we talked about delivery and you nailed it on the head, Andy. So super stoked. 
I, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, there, there are certain times and uh, depending on the topic, but uh, <laughs> it's gotten better. I've gotten better. Um, are there any uh, books that you recommend? I know you mentioned, uh, I forgot where it was, but there was like a pain one that you had mentioned. Uh, uh, on, yeah, on I forgot I which no. book that was, no. but I mean, pain science and basically Lorimer Mosley's work and, you know, anything talking about explaining pain, those guys have been around for 15 20 years now. They're Australian okay. physiotherapists. I've probably learned the basis of my idea of pain science through reading Explain Pain and Explain Pain Supercharged. Those are great uh, textbooks to okay. always have handy because it really enlightens you to how pain is, is neuro, not all mechanical. So it's both, but um, those are good. Um, we're reading right now um, Playing with Movement. That's Todd Hargrove's book. Uh, he talks about movement variability and, uh, you know, our new class with rock tape, we have a movement course, we're assessing movement and we're talking about movement variability mm -hmm. and how not everyone squats the same, you know, people are different shapes and sizes, you know, mechanically, you know, hips, are orientated differently for everybody. So not everyone could have the perfect, you know, FMS squat. So how does that play into assessment and how does that play mm -hmm. into motion? Um, and then let's see what else have I read lately. I probably those kind of like my tops lately. So playing with movement, Todd Hargrove talks a lot about movement variability, which is kind of a really hot topic right now. Awesome, perfect. Yeah. Now uh, we have two more things, real quick. Uh, the last thing is uh, speed round. Basically, I ask you a couple <laughs> of questions, and you only have a few seconds to answer. Okay. It just gets us to it's fun. Uh, funny all at once and it gets to learn a little uh, help us learn a little bit more about you and then at the okay. end uh some special thanks that i'd like to give so the first thing is speed round so speed round like i mentioned is a few questions that i have here um that gets us to, to know a little bit more about dr ethan christ's work um and puts a little okay. more pressure on your end so i think it's pretty funny um so i typically say you have 0.3 seconds to answer but that number doesn't really matter it's just whatever comes to the top of your head is what you say, um, and we move on to the next question. Yes, sir. Are you ready for that? Um, okay. <laughs> I hope you're not too nervous. Sometimes. Okay. I, I even get sometimes nervous, but it's okay. All right. First question. Favorite belt so oh, far that you have obtained yeah, my in purple belt, I won pans that year, and I won nationals that year, and I got people. I choked out two people unconscious, and then I helped them on the mat because I was also working medical. So I choked them unconscious. They didn't tap, and then I had to treat them medically. Great year. Yeah. That, wow. <laughs> yeah. Talk about coming full circle. Wow. All right. Next question. First oh, thing you do in the morning when you wake up. Isn't that the worst? Check my phone. Plain. That I am, I, I am, know, I, can, I, I gotta say, I'm disappointed. Phone. So bad. <laughs> hey, I'm honest. I'm honest. And Check you know your what? Cell phone. I know a lot of people do that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, favorite oh, movie man, of all time. Me for this. I got too many of them. You know what? I really love Devil Wears Give Prada. Give me the first two. <laughs> really? I do, man. I really like that movie. Let's jump on from that. I, yeah, I know. I know. I watch it every time it's on. Jeez. Oh, gosh. You could go Gladiator, Shawshank Redemption, um, Training Day, okay. uh, Shine, which is about a, um, uh, a pianist, protege kid who was supposed to be incredible and did wasn't incredible because his dad basically kept his thumb on him. Shine. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. I get to 
Yeah. Wait, bro, I we're, we're going to go back to this Devil Wears product. So talk, talk to me. How how did that, I mean, again, it's, it's okay. You have your your preferences, but Devil, okay. Devil Wears product. That, what do you um, like about the movie? I'm, I think I'm a pleaser. I, I like to help people. That I really like to see people succeed. And in that mm-hmm. movie, um, the, the lead character basically did everything she could to beat down the, the new protege. And that new protege uh, basically mm-hmm. did everything she could to show that she can do it. She persevered and she became everything that that woman wanted her to be, even though that woman tried to do everything to her to make her quit. And I just love that fire. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's a girly movie. And uh, I'm not too uh, ashamed to say it. I like girly movies. Awesome. Hey, listen, I'm a big chick flick type of guy. Uh, my fiance, I usually uh, let her pick the movies. Uh, and I'm okay. a big yeah, uh, rom-com type of guy. I love that. So, listen, so I, I, you know, I just like to hear your why you choose the movies. I think it's 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 yeah. very important to hear that. <laughs> um, last question. Um, do you Man, put your socks, socks on first I'm or your pants on first? Dude. If I don't have, yeah, yeah. But, wow. Yeah, man, I'm flip flops. You're really throwing me off today. As much as I can. Luckily, because, you know, I don't have to be unless I have to lecture, right? Which is weekends. Um, I have to wear shoes. So always put my socks on first. Yes. So socks on first. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. All right. Uh, Well, now we know a little bit more about you, Ethan. Uh, this last part, uh, I, I consider the most important part of the entire podcast. And here's where I have three thank yous I'd like, I'd like to give. The first one is to you, uh, Dr. Ethan Chrysworth, for giving us the time to jump on this podcast and just to hear more about yourself and your journey and just to hear your knowledge and your philosophy and your approaches of uh, not only how you help people, but how you help prepare uh, those that help people. So thank You're you very much. So for much. Thanks for giving thank me the time, time. No problem. And then the second second to last is uh thank you to our listeners thank you to the listeners uh for giving us the opportunity to have this platform to even have the opportunity to talk and uh to have people that listen uh and that continue to listen so thank you uh because you could have listened to anything at this moment or not listened to you could have been watching <laughs> devil wears product right now but you 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 uh instead are listening to ethan and i talk about uh rehab and health and everything in between even martial arts so thank you very much for jo- uh, for joining into this podcast and this episode uh thank you very much and the last thank you goes to our clients to our patients to our students uh to anyone that allows us to share our skills um, and our passion whether if it's teaching whether if it's treating or even again doing martial arts thank you for allowing us to do what we do and allowing us to have the platform to share our passion. Because again, if uh, this passion would be really empty if we had nobody to share it with. So thank you very much uh, for giving us that opportunity. Um, and this is uh, Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, signing out. Hey there, Andy Fortuna here, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. I love the opportunity to connect and share information with passionate people just like you and would love the opportunity to do the same for others. So please take the time right now to leave a five-star review and help spread the word about this podcast. Thank you so much for your support and see you on the next episode. Hold up.